Thought-provoking? No question. Informative? You bet. This is Talk of the Town on News Talk 1290 CJBK. Left Turn Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer today. Gentlemen, welcome. Nice to have you both here. Good morning, Jim. We're going to do a little bit of a grab bag today, I think, folks, although we never know where this is going to go. We'll we'll talk about a topic as long as we can, but I've got three or four things that I want to throw on the table for the guys just to sort of get their thoughts, and we'll make of them what we will. Our lines are open, too, for you at 643-1290, star-1290 in the Rogers AT&T. I want to start by the, uh, the, the announcement yesterday of the death of uh, two of Saddam's sons. Uh, apparently, apparently, now we got a call saying that it's not as cut and dried as it might appear, but apparently somebody turned them in for the reward. There was a uh, up to $15 million a piece for them. We don't know exactly how much the guy who did it is going to get or how they sort that out, but the principle remains the same. They were turned in for money. We talked about it a little bit earlier in the program, and I'd just like to ask each uh, Bob and, and, and Jeff whether they have any thoughts about this is this an ethical issue at all is it just a practical issue of war you know what do you make of it jeffrey i'd start with you when you heard about you heard the story got a few of the details did it make any impression on you other than the fact that these guys were were you know fugitives uh, they were combatants and they were killed well it, it did in the sense that uh, on the one hand i think everybody's glad if, if they're gone because it doesn't sound like they'll be missed they certainly sound like awfully bad people but i, I have been kind of struck uh, a little wryly with this whole american uh, preoccupation with uh, bounties and with uh, dollars and uh, this whole idea that everybody in the world is only interested in american dollars and that they'll sell out their best friend and sell out their political cause and all that for american dollars to me seems a little bit crass I don't know, and uh, I suppose it's cost-effective cost if they're spending $4 billion a, a month in Iraq, uh, you know, to spend $15 million to uh, to get uh, these two guys killed would be very cost-effective, but uh, I, I, at least it was yesterday. Having said that, it has not been cost-effective in relation to Al-Qaeda, where uh, you have, I think, people who are ideologically driven, people who have a, a true belief, uh, you know, in their cause, and uh, I think what we've seen is that offering the money hasn't worked because they're not in it for the money. They're in it for, uh, you know, Allah or There's whatever There's been a question, is. though, whether they actually know that the money's out there, whether they believe that they'd get the money There's about Al-Qaeda. I've heard that that issue well, raised. And, and I've heard that, that, that it's not as easy as, uh, as um, you know, whoever turned in these guys uh, shows up at the embassy and they hand them $15 million. Yeah, that that, yeah. that uh, they're, they're, there's certainly a lot more to it than that. And I, I can't remember specifically, but I have the impression that in the past I've read about people who have come forward to get a reward for this, that, and the other thing and have been disappointed because they don't get it. It's not it's not quite that simple. But but uh, aside from, and that's a question of, do you trust, you know, do you trust the United States mm -hmm. uh, to come through on this stuff? Uh, but at root, uh, it's not that it, it's not keeping me up at nights for sure, but it is interesting that uh, it plays into this American belief system that the you know that anybody will do anything for an American dollar, and and I just don't think that that I think that that sort of plays a little bit into this American worldview, which is a little different than the rest of the world, and it sort of plays back to, for instance, how I it, just go back on George Bush. I don't think George Bush has tried to mislead anybody about anything. I think he really believes the things he's said, and I think he really believed that the Iraqis were going to welcome him with flowers. Mm -hmm. They were all just going to be so thrilled to have Americans in the hood that, uh, that they would just be uh, doing cartwheels. And I think that, that it pays, plays into the same kind of thing about, you know, well, We've got dollars, American dollars. We're giving them out here. You know, people will come uh, out of the woodwork to, to, to sell out their grandmothers if they can get some American dollars. Uh, again, as, as a Canadian, maybe I'm overly sensitive, but it's like, well, you know, the world doesn't begin and, and end with American dollars. Somebody suggested, though, that uh, if they, they could pull half their troops out and put a, say, a $100 million bounty on Sudan, everybody on the, on the, on the pack of cards 
we'll give up, we'll pay a hundred million dollars for everybody on here. Half of us are going home because that's all we'll need. That maybe that would make the difference. But you're saying, well, the word, it's an will. Mm-hmm. And, and again, but you know, I'm, I'm not the guy suggesting that Al Qaeda has anything to do with Iraq. So it's the Al Qaeda guys we want to get. You know, I'm sitting here shaking my head, Jeff. You took another opportunity to do some American bashing, but uh, <laughs> to suggest... Just to go back, I love the United States. Americans have a preoccupation <laughs> with dollars and paying bounties is, is absurd. Every country in the world uses bribery and corruption in, in terms of manipulating people, whether it's the subtle law that they use on their citizens or whether it's out-and-out pay, paying bribery and corruption to direct people for information. There's nothing new about that. Um, if you're looking at the ethical issue, it's funny that we're even talking about we're talking about a, a price here, literally, um, in the midst of an environment where most morals and ethics have been thrown out the window. Because when you're in a state of war and in a state of aggression, rights and all the individual rights and the protections you get from a stable government just aren't there. Mm-hmm. You're not even in the right box. So, in an environment where people are literally pointing guns at each other and shooting at each other to argue about did they pay too much money for this information or that information is hardly uh, the greatest ethical issue there. I think uh, in terms of, uh, you said it was about $15 million, I think they got a deal. Because what would it have cost them in terms of dollars again and lives to have to get the information on their own? I heard you this morning reflecting a bit on the unfairness of, for example, the American soldiers who are there fighting doing the work mm-hmm. and not getting that kind of money, whereas this lowlife who gave the information got the money. Well, the American soldiers didn't have the information. That's what was being bought, mm-hmm. not their service. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a different product. Their service, one of our callers made the point that essentially their service is a given. They, right. are, they are American soldiers. They do what the job is, is that they do whatever the job is that needs to be done. Now, with respect to Americans paying the bribery with American dollars, um, I think it's a great way, you, you, know, you know, you've heard the phrase, follow the money, if you mm-hmm. want to know where something's going. Mm-hmm. Well, American dollars have to eventually be spent in America, for the same reason that Canadian tire dollars have to be spent in, in, in Canada <laughs> tire, okay? Mm-hmm. It's the same principle. And so, they can follow the dollars, and by seeing where the money's going, they might just, just have bought themselves another $100 million worth of information. Although, to me, what like if the object is to get these guys, and I think that it is, to me, I, I would hope that they are sophisticated to the point, the Americans that is, of, of talking to psychologists and psychiatrists about what is it that motivates human behavior. And, I, and I'm, I'm reminded of, for instance, uh, I've read that uh, when they talk about job satisfaction, how, how salary is usually like number six or seven on the list of what makes you happy in your job. Mm-hmm. And I hope again that that, uh, that the Americans have gone through an analysis, and I'm sure they have, of what is most likely to cause someone to want to turn him in. And one of the, the ironies of it, it strikes me, is that I think that a guy like George Bush would say, no amount of money would cause me to betray my country because I'm that's my moral standard mm-hmm. uh, to expect that someone else will sell out their country is, is also a little bit condescending is it selling out well, our country it's not the leader of the country you're talking about it's some low-life guy in the low ranks well I it's, it's can't kind of, really the see the leader has been deposed but I'll bet there's a lot of people maybe Trudeau would, or, or uh, Chen might have a, a price there that he'd accept <laughs> I think he sold us out pretty well already <laughs> the people who are most likely to have the information we want probably think their leader's been deposed Okay, I want to I want to change the subject here um, because another issue that we talked about earlier today, uh, and, and it's 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 very problematic for a lot of Ontarians, even some Ontarians like me who are opposed to government intervention in situations. We've got the problem with the beef farmers, where through no fault of their own, they have been put under tremendous international pressure. The sales of their product have fallen off precipitously. 
uh, to the point where I'm told uh, I have a friend who works with a lot of uh, in, in the industry works with a lot of beef farmers and says a lot of these guys literally are, are facing the loss of their of their uh, of their family businesses of their farms uh, because of circumstances beyond their control. Um, the suggestion has been made that the solution for this problem, at least in the short term, is some kind of government subsidy or, or you know, help them through this. Let's keep these businesses open because they're not, and this is the argument, and I'll ask you to comment on it. The argument is they're not victims of fair competition. They're victims of a, of a terrible disaster. Uh, and I'd like to ask you two guys whether you think there's any role here for the government to step in and help these guys until this mess sorts itself out and Canadian beef reasserts itself as a, as a premium product on the world market. And Bob, I, I know you're not a fan of government subsidies or government intervention. No, and I don't support subsidizing in this case either. Okay. The capitalist system is not a profit system. It's a profit and loss system. It operates under certain governmental rules that people supposedly know about when they go into the business. There are many things that can happen to your business that are no fault of your own. A tornado could hit your your property. You could have a fire. You, you know, it could be a subject of vandalism, war. Uh, many things could happen. Uh, but the issue is consider what's going on when we when we subsidize uh, anybody. In this case, you'd be asking, for example, uh, first of all, we're, we're forcing consumption. A lot of vegetarians, for example, will be paying for meat now. Mm -hmm. If we pay farmers to grow meat, even if they're morally and everything opposed to it. But really, at the bottom of the issue is the fact that there's an oversupply of meat. Maybe not on the high-end cuts, but on the regular and low-end cuts, there's an oversupply. Mm -hmm. And what our, what our farmers need is the American market, because we are overproducing mm -hmm. right now. So the only way to deal with an overproduction of, of it is either to destroy the, the production itself or to lower prices to a degree where you can move it, which I imagine a bit of both is going on to some degree. But to, ex to always expect the government to come in and bail people out. Now, remember, I also realize the bigger picture, which we're not dealing with here, is that the government extremely regulates these people mm -hmm. and has all kinds of things that I don't think should be in place, particularly when you're talking about things like, quote, marketing boards of mm -hmm. any sort. Um, that's absolutely anti-marketing is what that's all about. And what happens is that as markets change and forces in the real market are changing, the people, the producers are, are being kept, quote, protected from those changes until it's too late and then they get it all dumped on them at once. But are we better, now, will we be better off one, two, three years down the road if we let market forces prevail and let yep. all of these guys go out of business? Will we as consumers be better off? Oh, consumers will be. Why? Because because it's a profit and loss system, and the strong will survive, so to speak. I mean, the people who the have the capital... But the strong aren't necessarily interested in our welfare. No, they're not. No, of course not. No one is. And neither are we interested in theirs, are we? Everyone's interested in their own welfare, and that's why you must have a free market in which all all uh, associations are voluntary. As soon as you have, we should be interested or not. We're not. We're not saying we're not interested. We're no, saying no. we could be or we could not right. be. Is there a reason to be? Right now, you know, I look at this as a great chance for me to get cheap meat. Okay, as mm -hmm. a consumer, if you're mm -hmm. asking me to talk as a consumer, mm -hmm. if I were a producer, I wouldn't be saying that. Mm -hmm. I'd be, you know, help me, help me, help me. But you are know? you, are you, are you cutting off your nose to spite your face and in, in being excited about cheap meat now? But you no, may, no, that's not my motivation. I know because I. I understand economics. I understand the marketplace. These things will recover. Um, I think there's a lot of ways we can help the farmer without giving them subsidies. How would we do that? Well, first of all, I don't know why. The, the, the big issue here is the Americans basically have a trade barrier there. Yeah. We should be screaming about that, making a huge issue about it. Um, 
I can't see any reason why it should still be in place if the reason, the original reason, which was legitimate, you know, mm-hmm. was, the, was the mad cow thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, what would have happened if we found out that all the herds were contaminated and they all had to be destroyed? It's happened in Europe a few times. Um, I know some of their governments subsidize them, but again, we are subsidizing American consumers. You're you're asking Canadians to pay for meat that Americans will consume because that's the problem. We've got an oversupply, which they would like to send to America. But they can't. But they can't. So they want us to pay the difference, right? So we're paying for future American consumption. Well, and uh, that's the the hard knocks of uh, of business, though. And that's why you should always welcome a subsidy if another country does it because they're subsidizing your product, right? (laughs) Well, but the question is whether (laughs) they'll do it forever, that's great. But if they're doing it to just drive people out of business, then that's not so good. And I guess the thing about the Americans as tough bargainers is that if they've seen an opening here to to get around free trade and say, yeah, we we are all in favor of free trade except that where uh, where it helps us to close our borders, in which case we'll keep them closed as long as we can conceivably get away with, uh, you know, and all's fair in business. I guess to me the question is, is there a, a an overriding reason why we need to keep uh, beef farmers in Canada? And uh, I think that as far as family farms, my, not, not that I know a lot about it, but it seems like the trend is certainly away from that. And if we're subsidizing effectively large corporations, uh, you know, or even multinational corporations who happen to have huge farms in Canada, then I might see that differently than saying we should help little farmers. I worked in but, I mean, there has to be a cost-benefit. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. To me, you'd have to look into it. Well, there's always a cost-benefit in a free market. Otherwise, the transaction wouldn't occur. I think we have to come back to this. That This is not a free market because the American government has already intervened in the free market. I understand. And you're saying, well, we've got an injustice here. Let's toss another injustice in. But, you know, they won't go away. They keep adding more. Back in the early 80s, I was in the real real estate and banking industry when when interest rates hit 22%. And I saw branches of my company closing, quote, pardon the pun, left, right, and center all over the province, Mm -hmm. okay? I didn't hear one government person say, we're going to help this industry because it's important to our economy, which it is. I didn't hear one person or one person in industry say it was important. They were glad to see the the shift in the whole market. And I would say that the real estate market today is fairly healthy. What would you say? Yeah, it seems to be. Well, Mm -hmm. there again, now, would it be if the government had gotten in and started intervening and controlling and regulated? You think we'd have as healthy a real estate market today? If the government were more involved, I could tell you right now you wouldn't. Well, you can find it. You can find uh, success stories and failures, sort of whichever model you go. To me, one of the big success stories that I've read about is the Japanese auto industry, which was heavily subsidized uh, in the 50s uh, because they wanted to get a, uh, get themselves established. They they had a huge problem getting into the United States and so on. Uh, you know, and again, that they what I've read is that they gave them a kickstart through heavy government subsidy, through preventing imports into Japan, which they still do to a large extent, uh, and uh, got that industry going and it's become one of the mainstays of the Japanese uh, economy. Uh, so there are models where it can work, but the, for every one you show that it has worked, you can show half a dozen that haven't worked. But also remember, unlike the invisible hand of the free marketplace, the government has a visible hand. And therefore, everybody thinks the government can do a lot more than the market. When the government takes your money, you feel it. You know it. It's gone in taxes. Mm-hmm. When the government builds a building, they make a big fanfare of it. It's on the front pages of the paper. Oh, we got this big convention center. We got this. We got that. And it's visible, and you can see the people working. But what you don't see is for every forced dollar that they take from from the taxpayer and put it into these forced projects, you're losing jobs all over the country. That's why the unemployment rate keeps going up in the midst of all this success, you know, because we're having too much forced spending in in the nation. Every time you have forced spending, you get less value for your dollar. It's just a given. Okay, we're going to pause for a second. When we come back, we'll take a look at the uh, shift in focus of the liberal leadership race and what happens if Paul Martin gets hit by a truck. CJBK. 
where interesting people talk and London listens. Left, right, and center with uh, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. And we've been talking about a variety of things today. I want to ask both you guys now about the big news out of Ottawa, about uh, Mr. Manley stepping out of the um, stepping out of the race. What does that mean, if anything? Does it does it have any significance other than the fact that he realized he wasn't going anywhere? And uh, well, well, here's my theory. My theory is, my theory is that he recognized that in order to go any farther than he is, he's going to have to start getting nasty with Paul Martin, and he's going to lose anyway. So why would you get nasty with the guy who you want ultimately is going to be your boss? You want to be his successor, so you, you just wouldn't do it. You gotta step away. What, what do you make of that? Well, there's a story in Hill Times a couple weeks ago as well that had said that uh, that Manley would not be any part of a Martin cabinet. Uh, which I think was kind of surprising in the sense that I, I think Manley would be considered to be kind of the bright lights of uh, of the uh, caucus. So uh, I think that he, he may have seen some writing on that wall as well, and it wouldn't surprise me if there was some kind of a, uh, a, a gentleman's a agreement made. A deal, Jeffrey, a deal. Dark corners in a, in a <laughs> restaurant in Ottawa somewhere. But uh, from the start, I, I wondered why he was running in the sense that it was clear there was no way he could beat Paul Martin. And I th assumed that the reason was to make a race of it, that they mm -hmm. wanted to at least try and generate some interest. And uh, I guess they've had a bunch of um, a bunch of uh, uh, debates. But I, mm -hmm. I haven't seen <laughs> Nobody's paid any no, attention well, to any of them. No. No. no, I think it's pretty well accepted that Paul Martin's going to be the next leader of the Liberal Party. So mm -hmm. this is really a non-event. I don't so think a deal have... was even necessary. What, why, what, what does he... What does anybody else bring into the table? Well, what He's going to win anyway. Is we need to start thinking about what Paul Martin's going to be like as prime minister. Not, not that, it, you know, that we can do anything about it, but do you think he's going to be better, worse, different than Exactly President? the same, same as what we're getting right now. Liberalism is liberalism. You're going to see a very pragmatic approach to government. Uh, you know, the, the Ernie Eves approach, almost, I'm almost expecting, is the uh, you know deal with each issue as it comes kind of approach mm -hmm. yeah. and not really have a long-term viewpoint, which I, I would love to hear what the long-term view of all the major political parties is. You know, I, can I, right now, I can tell you. I have as someone who, who runs a small party, I get asked that question I every day, but no person would ever ask it of a major party. Sir, I have the answer for you, sir. I can tell you exactly what the long-term purpose of each of the major Canadian political parties is. It's one of two options. Either to get power and hold on to it, or to hold on to it. One of the two. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's yeah. as far as it goes. Wait a minute, I thought it was utopia. <laughs> to lead us to a no, promised that's the, land. That's the NDP. That's the NDP. That's the, not, the, not the other ones. Well, it'll be interesting to me in the sense that I've seen Paul uh, speak a number of times over the years, and every time he's spoken, he's said things that sound to me very different than what he's done, in the sense that uh, every time he's spoken, he's well, talking. He's a classic about, liberal then. Well, yeah. The, <laughs> Canadian liberal. But, but it means like, well, is he going to, you know, do words, or are his words going to mean something, or will his actions continue on? Like what I've heard is, well, you know, he, he was a lot more right wing than he wanted to be because he was finance minister, and that was his job, and yada, yada. And every time I've heard him speak, he's always said this part about, my father built the social programs of this country, and I'll be the last man to tear them down, and so on. And then he tore them all down. And so now, as prime minister, you know, he's got free reign. Do well, he was the last man to tear them down. Why is it always the rich guys who, who, who defend the socialism in this country? Why is that? I mean, look, you know, Trudeau, you know, the great architect of Canadian socialism, was a, you know independently wealthy, never worked a day in his life. Uh, Isn't that interesting? It's Martin has worked a few days, but he's a you know, multi-multi-millionaire. Yeah, no, the noblesse oblige yeah. uh, model. Uh, that uh, and, and, and yet we hear from the left, we keep 
keep hearing about about you know the perils of wealth and how the rich are you know abusing everybody else and the rich are doing this and the rich are doing that. It seems to me the rich are the staunchest defenders of socialism that we have. Well, I've been struck by that in the states too, in the sense that uh, I've been reading that uh, the Republican Party have far more small donors than the Democrats do. The Democrats tend to be driven by fewer larger donors. Mm -hmm. And again, it's this: the, the wealthy are effectively supporting the party that that is always jamming away against the wealthy. Uh, it's an interesting paradox. I, when I when people get something. rich because of government favors and privileges, you can expect that they're going to want to continue that system, and socialism serves that purpose. Capitalism doesn't allow people to get to have unearned power. Only a government system would give them that. Milton Friedman observed many years ago, before there were any sort of government aid programs for the poor, that he there was no record ever of anyone in the so-called poor class lobbying for government aid. It just didn't happen. The people who always lobbied for government aid for the poor were the people who wanted to control the poor and use the poor as a constituency for themselves. Well, the poor didn't have votes and for one thing. that was primarily politicians. Sorry? Well, in, that, in those days, you couldn't vote unless you owned property, and, and you couldn't vote if you were a woman. So, like, certainly historically... Well, those, are, those are other issues. Yeah. Um, but isn't that the base of the American Revolution, was that sort of the, the, the uh, middle class rose up against the lords in England and so on and, uh, and grabbed power? Uh, I, I've, I've heard other theories, but I think that's sort of the, the popular idea is that, uh, well, that pop, monarchy, yeah, yeah. monarchy was sort of oppressing them and taxing them. Well, and so absolutely. On, and, that they, and it's the, the middle class Joe, that bears the cost of everything, every social program, every handout, Everything like that. But uh, so, when I think about uh, Trudeau and Martin, though, like Trudeau, Trudeau made his, his his money. His dad had gas stations yeah. in Quebec, and mm -hmm. I think he started like a CAA uh, yep. auto club. So he was a big private sector guy, and I, and I believe he was a very hard worker personally too. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that he was lazy, but it's interesting that that uh, he and Martin could have had extremely different lives of leisure if they wanted to. Uh, now power is seductive, obviously, uh, so that has a real attraction. But uh, I'm not sure. It's funny you to equate. I think I don't think laziness is the issue. I've seen people work really hard. To uh, even to be to do criminal activity when they could do do it much more easily, honestly. <laughs> you know? So you see these people the that are really working hard at something they could really be taking it easy on. Well, on that, on that cheery note, <laughs> we always work hard on this program. We could be taking it easy, but we don't take the easy way out. My thanks to Bob Metz and Jeff Summer. Always a pleasure, thanks, gentlemen. Jim. Thanks, Jim.